1: Father, thank you for just uh, your many blessings to us. Uh, as Ben just said, Lord, this is a time in our culture when we, um, we pull away from our normal, our normal schedule and we get together with family. And uh, the tradition uh, just in church history of, of thanksgiving is rich and full. And Lord, we are a people who have so much to be thankful for. And I just pray that you would just give each one of us a sense of overwhelming gratitude to Almighty God for our many blessings. As the psalmist said, praise the Lord and forget not all his benefits. And so, Lord, we we want to not forget any of the many, many things that you do for us. Certainly the material, physical benefits and blessings that are ours, all of them come from you, as Wes quoted earlier in James 1.17, every good and perfect gift comes from you. So our health, uh, Lord, our clothing, our, our food, the food that we eat every day, um, the places where we live, uh, our cars that we drive, oh Lord. And then all of our, 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 our jobs, our talents, our achievements, um, anything that we've ever done in, in this world, we did through gifts and talents and opportunities you gave to us. And Lord, we would not be those that are thankless, but want to go back like that one leper and fall down before you and say, thank you. But as rich and full as these physical blessings are, how much greater are our spiritual blessings in Christ? As Ephesians 1 says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And those blessings were given us before the creation of the world through election, Uh, Father, you set your love on us in Christ before we had done anything good or bad. In order that your purpose and election might stand, Lord, you chose us in Christ and and that we should be holy and blameless before you for all eternity. So you chose the end from the beginning, O Lord. We know that we're going to end up, through Christ, holy and blameless in heaven. So we are filled with a good hope. We know that the heavenly home to which we're going is rich and and beautiful and glorious. And so that we are, are able to be day after day filled with hope Uh, based on the promises of God. Um, And Lord, because of the gift of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, oh Lord, we are fully free from all of our sins as we've sung already today. We stand free of our sins um, by faith in Christ, not through anything that we've done, but like the thief on the cross had nothing to offer, but by simple faith, uh, he was forgiven of all of his sins. Or The paralyzed man let down, Uh, through the roof and when Jesus saw his faith he said take heart son your sins are forgiven so Lord we thank you for the forgiveness of sins we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit the indwelling spirit who guides us into all truth and so many other spiritual blessings we thank you for this local church we thank you for brothers and sisters who love the Lord and who are filled with the spirit and who pour into our lives and care about our lives and pray for us and set an example for us. Oh, Lord, so many good things. So, Lord, uh, I pray that not just Thursday, but throughout throughout the year, uh, Lord, that we would be uh, people characterized by thankfulness. And now, Lord, we ask that you would send forth the ministrations of your Holy Spirit. Lord, as I have the chance to preach, continue to preach now in the book of Job, uh, pray that you would unfold Job 41 to us, help us to understand its teachings, and larger just the, the teachings of, of the Bible concerning Suffering and how we are to face suffering. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Turn your Bibles to Job 41. Continue in our series in the Book of Job. One of the most exciting, one of my favorite books that I've I've probably ever read is a book called "To Conquer the Air," and it's the story about Orville and Wilbur Wright and what they did to develop uh, the first heavier-than-air um, craft, flying machine, airplane. Now, the book's title, To Conquer the Air, came from the insight that the Wright brothers had in watching birds fly, um, that conquering and indeed using the eddies and currents, uh, air pressure, the wind, uh, was the issue, the whole issue in flight. And so, while others like Samuel Langley worked on on smaller and lighter and more efficient engines, uh, the Wright brothers worked on the shape, the contour of the wing, and how to conquer the air through uh, the wing. And all of their uh, research, uh, they used wind tunnels. They were among the first to develop. A wind tunnel to to study the shape of the wing and the contour of the wing and uh, came to fruition, as we well know, December 17th, 1903 in our home state of North Carolina. You see it on all the license plates. Now, I want you guys to know, as loyal as I am to my adopted home state, those were Ohio boys that did that. But anyway, they just came because there was a bunch of sand dunes and some wind down there. But we, we want to take credit for it and put it on the license plate. First in flight, there it is, Kitty Hawk. But what enabled this heavy craft to lift off was the cumulative lift power of invisible molecules of air, air pressure, combining to create a force called lift. Nowadays, we modern people are so used to the scene of a jet jet, airplane taking off, like a Boeing 747, which can weigh over a million pounds fully loaded. Imagine if Orville and Wilbur could see a million pound aircraft taking off, but it lifts off the same way theirs did, by the cumulative power of invisible air molecules beating on the underside of the wing, with more force and net force. Uh, compared to that which presses on the upper part of the invisible air. And therefore, invisible air must be a very powerful thing, much more powerful than uh, we can imagine. Now, if you were in that cabin and soaring up through the atmosphere, cutting through the clouds like that, sometimes you can feel the change in air pressure. You can feel it in your ears. Has that ever happened to you? It's especially acute if you have an ear infection or some kind of an ear condition. It can be very painful. And that's because there is a constant beat of air pressure on our body all the time. About 14.7 pounds per square inch constantly pushing on on your body every square inch almost 15 pounds of pressure on every square inch of your body you're just so used to it you're, you don't even notice it well why am i talking about all this well there's a verse in the book of ephesians that describes satan's immense but invisible power on planet earth ephesians 2 2 calls satan the ruler of the kingdom of the air it's an interesting phrase, isn't it? A ruler of the kingdom of the air. Satan's powerful kingdom is like the air. It's invisible, but it's around us at every moment, affecting everything we do with its invisible pressures and eddies and currents and forces, spiritual forces on our minds. And on our hearts, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that's Satan. Now, at the end of that same book, Ephesians, Paul tells the Ephesian Christians that their true warfare is not with other human beings. Ephesians 6.12 says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, as we come to Job 41, we see a description of a beast, an animal, a creature called Leviathan. God brings up this creature and talks about this creature, Leviathan. And understanding him is the focus of this sermon. Now, my basic concept, and I unfolded this or began to open my mind to you two weeks ago, Uh, is that Leviathan represents Satan, the enemy of God's people. The book of Job generally is situated in the canon of Scripture with a central purpose to help God's people understand the problem of human suffering. Understand how it is that human beings can suffer so much, and specifically a godly person like Job the kind of general slogan, why do bad things happen to good people? I have kind of all kinds of problems with that slogan because, as Jesus said, there is no one good but God alone. But we understand what that means, and we expect retribution to wicked tyrants who try to conquer the world and end up cowering in a reinforced concrete bunker and committing suicide. That makes sense to us. Or a criminal that ends up in some kind of a firefight with law enforcement and loses his life or ends up getting arrested and sent to prison for his crimes. We understand all that. That's not the problem of evil and suffering. We're talking about why it is, why does it happen to innocent people, little children? Why does it happen to other people and and specifically for us, Christians? Why do we go through such grief and sorrow and pain? Why does God allow these kinds of trials to come into our lives? That's the question. And the book of Job is given to answer that. And I'm asserting that the problem of evil and suffering cannot be addressed without understanding the role of demons and the role of Satan, our invisible enemies, kingdom of the air. I believe, as I said two weeks ago, behemoth, the plural, Hebrew plural, beasts but singular, um, and then even more, Leviathan, the even more powerful and terrifying beast, introduced here in this chapter, Job 41, are best understood representing demons and Satan. And the message about both is this. Job, your suffering, in part, is caused by Satan and demons, by satanic forces. And as with these two monsters, Behemoth and Leviathan, they are too strong for you. You can't handle them. You cannot control them. You cannot capture them. You cannot kill them. But God can. Almighty God, the God of the universe, has absolute power over these terrifying beasts, over Satan and demons. And not only that, but God is channeling them in some way, blocking them, restraining them, redirecting them. He's got them on a leash, all of these things for his wise purposes. And in the end, he will capture them. And in the end, he will kill them for all eternity in the lake of fire. So we Christians should be aware of Satan. We should prepare for Satan. We should resist Satan. We should be confident in ongoing protection from Satan. We should venture forth boldly in life and ministry despite Satan. And we should be hopeful over the future of Satan's death. And we should understand Much, if not all, to some degree, of the evil, the sorrow and and misery that happens in this world is ministered or directed or brought about by satanic influences. Now, a key verse for me in interpretation of this, and I I began to explain why I'm going this direction, is Isaiah 27.1, which mentions Leviathan as well. Isaiah 27.1 says, In that day the Lord will punish with his sword, his fierce, great, and powerful sword, Leviathan, the gliding serpent, Leviathan, the coiling serpent, he will slay the monster of the sea. So that's God killing a monster. In Isaiah 27.1, it seems to represent evil. Though Leviathan is an actual sea creature in Psalm 104.26, Isaiah seems to use Leviathan to represent an evil enemy of God, which at some later time he will kill with his fierce, great, and powerful sword. So it is biblically reasonable to see Leviathan as some evil force that is set against God, as an enemy against God. Also, because Satan is portrayed as a dragon in Revelation 12 and 13, a dragon it lines up with the dragon-like attributes that we may see in Leviathan Revelation 12:3 the apostle John has a vision and it says then another sign appeared in heaven an enormous red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns on its head so a dragon and then a few verses later verse 9 Revelation 12:9 uh, the great dragon was hurled down that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan Who leads the whole world astray? He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. So, this is the biblical backdrop of my interpretation of Leviathan as Satan. Now, I did say to you two weeks ago that I am 100% certain that demons and Satan are, are immediately involved in the suffering of human beings all over the world. There's no doubt in my mind biblically about that. There's no question about it. It's not controversial at all. And as a matter of fact, in this same book of Job, in Job 1 and 2, Satan is right there active and involved. I am not 100% certain that Behemoth and Leviathan represent that. So as I said, if you would rather go literalistic on this and say, I just think there are two more animals, remember what I said in Job 38, uh, there are 10 animals that God brings out as evidence, natural theology, Job 39, those chapters. And he brings out 10 animals, um, beginning with the lion and then nine others that show God's amazing creative power. God's very creative. And the lesson is, such a creative, wise, powerful God should be trusted. You should trust him in the midst of your sorrow and suffering and not bring any accusations against me. Job repents and then God comes back with two more animals and the book ends. So if that's how you want to look at it, I understand, I respect that and so then you would try to figure out what they are, hippopotamus and crocodile It's right there in the notes. Just look there. All right, God made the hippo, and they're very dangerous, and they are very dangerous. You don't want to mess with a hippo. One of the biggest, maybe the biggest animal killer of human beings in Africa. They are dangerous. And then what? A dragon, maybe? Or maybe a crocodile? Possibly. And the message then in this just simple, literal approach would be, You can't handle behemoth, you can't handle Leviathan, but I made them, I can handle them. So how do you think you can challenge me? I'm far greater than they are. So look at verse 10 and 11 in the very chapter, uh, what you just heard Dave read. No one is fierce enough to rouse him, meaning Leviathan, who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. I think that's a completely valid way to look at these two animals. It's a how much more argument. I made them. I'm more powerful than they are. uh, But you can't handle them. You can't control them. You can't capture them. You can't kill them. And so therefore, how do you think you can challenge me? You ought to trust me. That's the, the logic there. And I think that's a valid way. The one question I would ask for you, though, who would want to take only a literal approach here to these animals, is it even true? Can you name a single animal on earth that we don't win against? name it. Are you telling me we can't capture hippos and put them in zoos? I've seen a hippo in a zoo. You got to be careful. But the logic that you can't stand against the hippo and all that, I was like, I wouldn't go unarmed and I wouldn't go alone. I wouldn't go at all. But there are some people that are skilled at it, and they can figure it out, all right? And then the dragon, if it literally was a dragon, now they're extinct. That's fine. I get it. But I mean, we were given planet Earth to fill the Earth and do it and rule over it. We win. So I just think you're challenged, if it's literal, to actually think this could even be true, that there's no weapon that could possibly be forged against a physical creature named Leviathan that, that we wouldn't win. I think it pushes you toward a spiritual or metaphorical, symbolic interpretation. All right, and that's the approach I'm going to take. Leviathan, the terrifying dragon, is introduced for us in verse 1. And right away, uh, it's an adversarial approach. Keep in mind, if that's all that God wanted to do, lions are sufficient, don't you think? Lions are terrifying. You can't just approach a lion. As a matter of fact, in, in Isaiah, they're, they're re- represented as utterly fearless. They are in no way intimidated by shepherds that are gathered against them, yelling and brandishing sticks. If you want to do that, you can do that with lions. But what he's saying right away here, as he did with Behemoth, but now even more with Leviathan, is as an adversary, you will lose. Look at verse 1 and 2. Can you pull in the Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down his, ro- his tongue with a rope Can you put a cord through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? So with this verse, God is challenging Job and all humanity about Leviathan. He cannot be controlled or captured. Right away in this this first verse, there's a sense of hunting. Like I said, an adversarial relationship with this terrifying beast. And man's weakness in the face of Leviathan's strength is obvious. The language to pull in Leviathan with a fish hook would be to control or capture him. So also to tie down his tongue with a rope or put a cord through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook. It's the same kind of thing. Controlling him. You can't control him. These are hunting images and God's saying you cannot do this. You cannot control Leviathan with a cord or a hook through his nose. You cannot capture him or tie him down with a rope. Later we will see that he's going to say all weapons forged against him will fail. Anything you could think of, it'll fail. So we'll get to that, but that's where we're heading. God next speaks of Leviathan's aggressiveness. He is beast. He is beast through and through. Here are verses three through six. Will he keep begging you for mercy? Will he speak to you with gentle words? Will he make an agreement with you for you to take him as your slave for life? Can you make a pet of him like a bird or put a leash on him? for your girls will traders barter for him will they divide him up among the merchants it's all rhetorical questions just no 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 you can't handle this beast he is aggressive he will never speak with gentle words you can't reason with him too powerful for you leviathan cannot be con- c- killed by man no human weapon forged against him i'm going to say more against that but that's what verse 7 uh, speaks of, but there are just many more verses about this later. Can you fill his hide with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Well, that would do it, wouldn't it? To fill its head with spears would kill him. But you can't. You can't. And then there's the terror of hunting Leviathan, verse 8 through 10. If you lay a hand on him, you'll remember the struggle and never do it again. I mean, you'll remember it the rest of your life if you even just laid a hand on him. Any hope of subduing him is false. The mere sight of him is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse him. Now, at this very point, as I've already uh, cited, and I preached a whole sermon on these two verses, verse 10 and 11, it's vital. God interjects himself right here in the midst of the Leviathan section. He just puts himself in. Because God, throughout the whole book of Job, God is the issue always, always. Look at verse 10 and 11. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. God is the creator and the sustainer and the owner of the entire universe. He is also the active ruler and judge of the entire universe. No creature is powerful enough to stand against God. Lest we forget, Satan himself is a creature, a created being, who openly rebelled against God in the heavenly realms, as Revelation 12 makes plain, was defeated and thrown to the earth. And in the Garden of Eden, Satan came subtly masquerading as a serpent what revelation 12 9 calls that ancient serpent so he comes in disguise hence the beast language just makes sense because he's just always doing this he's disguising himself he masquerades as a serpent 2 Corinthians 12 says that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. If you could see him as he would present himself, he would be beautiful and alluring. He was enticed by his own beauty. That's why he fell into wickedness. But he really is a monster. In human race, this is who you made a covenant with. This is who you broke away from God to serve. This beast, this monster. This is who you made a deal with. And who... Christ broke that deal so that we would be drawn into a covenant relationship with God. You need to understand, he is a beast. We, Job, all of us, are members of a rebellious race. Rebellious. We join Satan in rebellion against God. Did any of you think we were going to get through this world unscathed? That there wouldn't be any pain? there wouldn't be any loss. The three categories of misery that Job went through, the loss of his wealth, the loss of his loved ones, his children, and then the loss of his health, we're we're not going to make it through unscathed. Death, we leave it all behind because the wages of sin is death. And whatever God does to us, he has the right to do. We can never have a claim against God that he must pay. But we owe him everything. We are answerable to him. He's not answerable to us. That's what he's saying in these verses. So no human being, even in the midst of extreme suffering, has the right to challenge God or question God because we belong to him. And we're accountable to him. So God says, you ought to be afraid of Leviathan. He is too powerful for you. But you ought to be even more afraid of me because I made Leviathan, And I made you, Job. I don't owe you anything, but you owe me everything. furthermore, as we'll see in the rest of this sermon, God in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, will exert his infinite power over Satan on our behalf. Jesus is our dragon slayer. He will go forth into battle for us. He will destroy this dragon and set us free forever from his clutches. So I already told my own good news, but you knew it. You knew it was coming. This dragon is too powerful for us, but Jesus went forth as our champion on our behalf to fight him. So to continue in the account, Leviathan's armor is described. Look at verses 12 through 17. I will not fail to speak of his limbs, his strength and his graceful form. Who can strip off his outer coat? Who would approach him with a bridle? Who dares open the doors of his mouth, ringed about with his fearsome teeth? His back has rows of shields tightly sealed together. Each is so close to the next that no air can pass between. They are joined fast to one another. They cling together and cannot be parted. Simple message here, as we've said already, is no weapon man can craft can penetrate such armor. That's what he's talking about here. And then, verses 18 through 21, the dragon becomes a fire breathing dragon fire-breathing. Look at verse 18 and following. His snorting throws out flashes of light. His eyes are like the rays of dawn. Firebrands stream from his mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from his nostrils as from a boiling pot over a fire of reeds. His breath sets coals ablaze and flames dart from his mouth. Now, many artistic depictions of dragons, especially in the European dragons, not so much the Chinese dragons, uh, depict the fire-breathing dragon sort. Amazingly, in the book of Revelation, it's not fire that comes out of the dragon's mouth, but a river of water, Revelation 12, to sweep away the woman and her children, I'm not going into Revelation 12 right now. I mean, I preached on that. That imagery is difficult enough. I'm having a hard time with Job 41, so we'll just stick to the difficulties of this one chapter. But out of the dragon's mouth comes a river to sweep away the woman and her children, Revelation 12, 15. And then in Revelation 16, evil spirits come out of the mouth of the dragon and the beast. So he opens his mouth there and out come evil spirits. Revelation 16, 13, then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. The beast that came from the earth, the Antichrist, had a mouth like a dragon, Revelation 13, 11. then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. Actually, it's the false prophet, but he's got a mouth like a dragon, So whether there's literal fire that came out of the mouth of a physical dragon doesn't seem to be the point. For me, this metaphor of Satan is the amount of damage that comes from Satan's words. False doctrine. Every false religion in the world that there ever has been has come ultimately from Satan's mind. All of the alluring temptations of the world come from him. And then once we fall into sin, he turns around and accuses us of our sins. Satan's assaults on the people of God in Ephesians 6 are depicted as flaming arrows, flaming arrows. Ephesians 6:16. 6, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Shield of faith can extinguish all of the flaming arrows of the evil one. I think there's two great categories when I think about flaming arrows. Temptations and accusations. Temptations and accusations. So you lift up the shield of faith so you can extinguish them. Verses 22 through 25, Job 41, describe the overpowering might of Leviathan. Strength resides in his neck. Dismay goes before him. The folds of his flesh are tightly joined. They are firm and immovable. His chest is hard as a rock, hard as a lower millstone. When he rises up, the mighty are terrified. They retreat before his thrashing. Just power, power. You can't defeat him. And now we get, as I've been saying and saying throughout the sermon would come. Verse 26 to 29 says, no human weapon forged against him will succeed. Nothing you can contrive can hurt him in any way verse 26 to 29 the sword that reaches him has no effect nor does the spear or the dart or the javelin iron he treats like straw and bronze like rotten wood arrows do not make him flee Slingstones stones are like chaff to him a club seems to him but a piece of straw he laughs at the rattling of the lance so that's the whole armory friends We cannot kill him. There's nothing the human race can do to defeat this beast. That's the point. And then the trail of destruction behind Leviathan is described, verses 30 through 32. His undersides are jagged potsherds, leaving a trail in the mud like a threshing sledge. He makes the depths churn like a boiling cauldron and stirs up the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him leaves a glistening wake. One would think the deep had white hair. Now, I can think of lots of weapons that win against a crocodile. I wouldn't want to fight one, but I'm just saying. Now, if this is a literal dragon and nothing could work against that, that just doesn't seem to be the point here. The trail of devastation left by this terrifying beast is overwhelming. And then look at the summary in verse 33, 34. Nothing on earth is his equal. Look at that. Nothing on earth is his equal. He is a creature without fear. He looks down on all that are haughty. He is king over all the proud. It's like he's king over all the earth. King over the entire human race. He rules over all humanity. The, the kingship, like almost like king of kings and, and lord of lords in some way. And it's significant because 1 John 5:19 says of Satan we know that we are from God and the whole world lies under the power of the evil one we know in the temptation of Jesus in Luke 4 5 through 7 it says the devil led him to a high place Jesus and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor and he said to them I will give you all their authority and splendor for it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to so if you'll worship me, it will all be yours. That's what I meant by king over kings. I know that's the title we give to Jesus, amen. It's his, and he got it back. But we gave the keys to the kingdom, to Satan, and he rules in a secret, powerful way over every nation on earth. So all human beings are in some sense his possession. We were locked up in his dungeon, in his dark dungeon, with invisible chains unable to free ourselves. And this is why we needed a dragon slayer. And Jesus is that dragon slayer. It was predicted in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.15. Remember how I said Satan came in the guise of a tricky serpent. That ancient serpent, Revelation 12.9, is Satan. And he came. And there was some kind of a A deal or a covenant to some degree made between the human race and Satan through the deception. And God, in judging the serpent, said, I'm going to sever the tie between you and the woman and between your offspring or seed and hers. Her seed. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. It's the first prediction of the coming of Christ. And so Paul says in the book of Galatians that Jesus was born of a woman. So without a human father, had a human mother, but no human father. He is the seed of woman. He is the dragon slayer, he's the one that came to crush the head of the serpent. And when Jesus came and did his ministry, I love in the Gospel of Mark. How terrified the demons are of Jesus. Amen? Hallelujah. Leviathan is fearless concerning humans, but he was afraid of Jesus. He's afraid of Jesus. Mark 1 23 through 27, at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, this account. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That sounds like fear to me. (laughs) Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. People were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching? And with authority, he even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. Jesus described his exorcisms as an act of violence done to a strong man, Satan. Listen to Luke 11, 20 through 22. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now listen to this. Think of this in terms of Leviathan, the description I've just given you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe, But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, listen, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. I love that. He can strip Leviathan of his armor and then plunder Leviathan's kingdom. He can just take away the armor in which he trusted. And you know what the spoils are? It's us, dear friends. We are the plunder. We are the spoils. We're the the ones that were rescued from Satan's dark kingdom. But the greatest destruction of Satan and his kingdom happened at the cross and at the empty tomb. You can't separate them, but together, Christ's death and his resurrection gave Satan and his kingdom a mortal wound. And he's been, to some degree, friends, bleeding out for 2,000 years. Like, man, I wish he would have just killed him. He'll get to that. And we'll talk about why he doesn't in a moment. But he gave him, he inflicted on him a mortal wound at that moment. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says of Jesus that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives are held in slavery by their fear of death. If you're a Christian, you're set free. You should be set free from all fear of death. And you know what else? You're set free from what death can take from you. You will lose all your possessions at death. Don't worry about it. You'll get your true wealth in heaven. You'll lose all your loved ones at death. Don't worry about it. You'll, you'll have your loved ones, your Christian loved ones, for all eternity in heaven. Can't wait to talk to you about Job's 10 kids. We'll get to that. No, don't, see, don't say those things in advance. But just, it's exciting to spend eternity, not just a mortal life, with your loved ones? Jesus had that power. And how did he do it? That by his death, he might destroy him that held the power of death? Do you get the sense that Jesus went down as our champion into the pit and grabbed Satan's weapon out of his hand and turned it on him and killed him with it? He did that by dying. Habakkuk 3:13 and 14 gives us this image. You came out to deliver your people. Think of this as Jesus. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. Amen. With Satan's own weapon he killed him so that we might have eternal life. So while... Leviathan, while Satan is too powerful for us, he's not too powerful for Christ. Christ, in one day at the cross, inflicted a mortal wound on Satan and his kingdom. And in this way, he sets all of his children free from Satan's dark kingdom. Colossians 1 13 and 14 says, He, God, Almighty God, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. Into his beloved the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Do you realize how sweet those words are? What does that mean? It means that Satan can stand at the right hand and accuse you, like he does in Zechariah chapter 3. He can accuse and accuse and accuse, because that's what the Hebrew word means: the accuser. He can stand there and accuse you. But you know what the answer is going to be? Romans 8. And verse thirty-two: Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, and moreover is at the right hand of God, is interceding for us. So you stand behind a, a hedge that is infl- it, it is it's made of iron, really. It cannot ignite with Satan's accusations. Because all of those accusations will be as nothing. God is saying, who will bring any charge against my forgiven children? And so in that way, Jesus is our dragon slayer. Now, you want the real final, like the final killing, don't you? You want want Satan to be crushed forever. Well, Revelation 20.10 says it's going to happen. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. Revelation 20.10 where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So Jesus is the dragon slayer. I just need to stop and say, do you know him today? Do you know him as your savior? Are your sins forgiven? Will Jesus intercede for you and stand at the right hand of God and plead the merits of his blood on your behalf. All you need for that to happen is just repent of your sins and trust in him. Not by works, but by simple faith in Christ. He will slay the dragon for you. Now, the question is, why doesn't he just destroy the demons and Satan? And in this, we need to understand the hedge of protection or the leash, the hedge and the leash. Now, at the beginning of the book, we see Satan roaming free over earth and wreaking havoc. Job 1.7, the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. And then the hedge is described in Job 1.10 as Satan himself said, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that the, his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. So Satan and his demons are are blocked. They're limited in their access to us. They want to get at us. They want to steal and kill and destroy. That's all they want to do. But they can't get at us. God will not let them. So that hedge represents a wall of protection that Satan cannot penetrate. So also the concept of a leash. A leash. Look again at uh, verse 5 in this chapter. It's... uh, God saying to Job, Can you make a pet of him, Leviathan, like a bird, or put him on a leash for your girls? Can you leash him? No, you can't, but I can. You see, he's on a leash. He's like my pet. A leash is a restraint, and Satan has to ask permission for every temptation he would hurl at God's people. He's got to ask permission. 1 uh, Corinthians 10.13 says, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. What do you mean, will not let you be tempted? It means Satan would like to tempt you more than he does, but God says no. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but with the temptation will make a way of escape so you can stand up under it. One thing Satan cannot do to us, which he would like to do, is destroy our faith in Jesus Christ. Do you remember the night that Jesus was arrested? Jesus gave Simon Peter a warning of what was going to happen that night. Simon Peter was so cocky, so overconfident in his own loyalty to Jesus. You remember? Even if all fall away on account of of you, I never will. I'm your number one believer, Jesus. Luke 22, verse 31-32. Simon, Simon. Satan has demanded to sift you, plural, all of you, like wheat. But I've prayed for you, singular, Simon, that your faith will not fail. And when you have turned back, then strengthen your brothers. So Jesus is at the right hand of God, Hebrews 7:25, is interceding for you while you go through trials to the end that your faith will not fail. And it won't. You are a believer going into your trial and you'll be a believer in Jesus Christ coming out of your trial. And not because you're so great. Peter wasn't so great. It's because you have a great savior and a great heavenly father who gave you the faith to begin with and will sustain it secretly in your soul no matter what trials you go through. No matter what Satan does, he cannot extinguish your faith in Christ. So, then what's going on? Well, God is using demons and using Satan as his pets to accomplish his ends. They're on a leash. They're controlled. They have to ask permission. This is an image I have right now. I don't know how helpful it is, but imagine a huge building complex like the Pentagon with like almost limitless corridors, But then there are all these doors with like swipe cards that if you don't have the swipe card, you can't get in. And you get the picture of the demons running pell-mell through the halls and they can't turn into any door that they choose. And then suddenly a door opens and they flood in there and do some damage in there and then suddenly that door shuts. And they're in there for a while and the door opens and they flood back out. This is going on every day. At the micro level around billions of people all the time and God is playing an infinitely higher game than Satan is his intellect is almost staggeringly higher than Satan's while his is much higher than ours and in heaven we're gonna to get to celebrate the wisdom of God and how he used demons and Satan limited them and all of that to achieve his incredibly good purposes God just in his kindness and his wisdom decided to let the demons and Satan have at us in limited ways like he did with Job, right? An opening was made in the hedge to do this and to do that and then it closed and that was it. And so we should celebrate the power of God in wisely channeling demons and evil for his own purposes. All right, so what are our final lessons? Well, God warns us about Satan if you don't think Leviathan is about that then just read Ephesians 6 (laughs) and it's right there and there's some things that we need to do I want just have an image I want you to fight Satan from behind your hedge just fight him from behind the hedge of protection and if a door opens it's because God opened it and he's choosing to bring some pain into your life some disease into your life, some suffering into your life. It's limited. It's not everything the demons would want to do or Satan could do. It's not that, but it's going to have a certain impact. Trust God as you walk through that. Trust Him. We don't live in a dualistic universe where God and Satan are equals and all. It's not at all. God is infinitely above Satan and is controlling Him. So, as I finish, I'll just give you six quick duties. Christians should be aware of Satan, we should prepare for Satan. We should resist Satan, be confident in ongoing protection from Satan, we should venture forth boldly in life and ministry despite him, and we should be hopeful over Satan's future death. So be aware of Satan. It says, put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against devil's, uh, the devil's schemes. Second Corinthians 2.11 says, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we're not unaware of his schemes schemes evil plots and evil plans yes he's playing chess in your life they're evil schemes be aware be aware of it be aware first peter 5 8 be self-controlled and alert your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour so be alert be aware don't be like simon peter he walked right into the lion's den without any protection, surrounded by Christ's enemies, warming himself at the fire, thinking he was fine, he could handle it. And he couldn't. He was in over his head. So be aware. Secondly, prepare. Ephesians six thirteen. put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. Prepare, prepare to suffer Prepare for those three categories of pain that were brought in Job's life. Loss of possessions, loss of loved ones, loss of health, prepare, get ready. And just every day, put on the full armor of God. Put on each part in Ephesians 6, get ready. Thirdly, resist the devil. Resist the devil and he will what? Flee from you. What a picture that is. Who am I? Who am I? The devil should flee from me. I know I am, I'm nothing. I'm the puny person in front of Leviathan that Job 41 was about. Well, then why is he fleeing? He's not fleeing from me. He's fleeing from Jesus and from the Spirit of God. So resist him and he will flee from you. Fourthly, be confident in God's over ongoing protection from Satan. Be confident in that. He's not going to allow anything to happen to you that is not according to his wise plan. Fifthly, Venture forth boldly to rescue people from Satan's dark kingdom. Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or hell, will not prevail against it. There are lost people here in the Raleigh-Durham area. Let's go find them. Let's be bold witnesses and be unafraid. And Finally, be hopeful over Satan's final demise. One of my favorite verses about this topic is Romans sixteen twenty: The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Isn't that a marvelous verse? Close with me in prayer. Lord, thank you for the chance we've had to walk through Job 41 today. Thank you for the things that we can learn. Pray that you would enable us to take to heart these lessons and that we would be prepared for the onslaught, which is so much more powerful than we can handle, but that we would look to you, Lord Jesus, our champion, our protector, the wall, the fortress, the citadel who keeps us safe. We look to you in Jesus' name, amen